1: Yes, it is. And welcome back Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. I'm so glad I don't have to say February anymore. Most people mispronounce it. It's February. It's hard. I get it. <laughs> welcome back. If it's Tuesday, we have Hugh and Lewis Holman with us. But Hugh Holman is actually not in the country. He called in from abroad. He'll be back, uh, I think, for our next iteration. But we are delighted to have Lewis Holman here. He is the managing director of Inside Analytics, Inside Analytics, LLC. And – uh we discuss the world, not just the physical, but the theoretical as well. Louis, uh, I know that uh, y- there's a lot on your mind. Start wherever you'd like. Sure. So, State of the Union, Ukraine, COVID—anything I'm not mentioning, you name it. Let's. Go, go
2: for why, it. why don't we start with Ukraine? Okay. Um, so, as we're all aware, uh, the invasion began roughly six days ago, um, and in that time, uh, the Russians have made progress to the gates of Kiev. About 140 kilometers – excuse me, 140 miles or so from Crimea up the Sea of Azov and then partial pressure from the east encircling cities like Kharkiv and and other sites as well. Um, What is really weird about the invasion? Let me start there. What's weird about the invasion is that it seems to have been set up for diplomatic pressure more than military success in that you've got sort of these plausibly deniable start points at three different you know points along the compass rows, north, east and south, uh, sort of surrounding Ukraine. But then all of them are sort of moving in at the same time with a partial commitment of forces. And this is really sort of strange to me. Um, Because in in military history, the dictum has been that you want to maximize what's known as sort of the concentration of force to space. And so by diluting their posture, you know, Russia made it harder to secure very, very dramatic, very, very quick victory in, in one specific location. And they may then take longer to make progress generally. Now, the second piece that's really weird is that uh, armies don't generally travel around as a band of individual battalions and yet that's kind of what has happened here. So the Russians are organizing their invasion along the lines of what's called the Battalion Tactical Group, a unit of about six to 700 men. And normally in armies when you have battalions, they're typically organized so that you've got a commander with about four subordinates and then each of them have four subordinates and so on and so forth. And so what we would expect – is that these battalion combat groups would have either regiments or brigades above them and then divisions above them and then potentially corps above them. This is how the U.S. organized its uh, command and control and logistical structure for the invasion of Iraq, for instance, in 2003. And yet what appears to have happened, as best we can tell, is that the Russians have taken a scattering of battalion combat groups from all over their their country – and sort of launch them into Ukraine wholesale. And why that's important is that a battalion combat group only carries enough supplies typically for about five days of heavy engagement. And the rest of that logistical structure is in the higher levels of their their organization usually. And so this is right about the time where the earliest units at sort of the tip of the spear would be running out of fuel, out of munitions, out of food, all sorts of other things. And indeed, this seems to be sort of what we're seeing on the ground is is the advance kind of grinds to a halt. And so what will matter will be the Russians' ability to kick up their logistics and and sort of follow up that initial blow. Otherwise, we're going to start to see sort of a, a really Significant bogging down of their invasion. That I think is 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 absolutely perfect
1: analysis as to what we've seen. What Brandon Weicker was saying to me the other day, and maybe to the audience. I just don't remember if it was offline or on, but it must have been to the audience. I don't talk to him much offline. He was saying there's an interesting his- history to Russia invade Russian invasions, which is they tend to s- not overwhelm at the beginning they tend to kind of bleed themselves a little bit as they push and feel and pinch what they're up against right and they kind of take the measure of what's happening almost a little bit by their own attrition more than the enemy's attrition Mm -hmm. and we americans tend to think more in terms of shock and awe what um, terms we have not necessarily the reality but certainly the terminology of it where they seem to be a little bit more halting a little more plodding but also a bit more ready for the long haul. All, uh it's all I know is what you know, I just told. There are
2: you. very very different military traditions in Russia and the United States. So that would be perhaps one of the one of the the big differences you you've touched on there is in that the Russians are are very used to using their casualty rates yep. as a barometer right. of of they don't have the
1: same quote unquote body bag syndrome that we have.
2: Right, that's very much the case. And that's also a product of their very long history spinning back you to, bet, you, bet. you know, the Mongols yep. in the 12th yep. century. Yep. But the the other sort of piece that's very different about the Russian way of war is that, you know, in the West, we have a big focus on quality. We like our things to work. We like spare parts. We develop extremely complicated logistical and supply chain infrastructure to keep our soldiers moving and our armies, you know, effective. But in Russia, particularly also as we saw with the Soviet Union, you know, that that kind of counterplay wasn't and isn't really possible for them. And so, you know, instead of an emphasis on spares, what you tend to see is an emphasis on sort of throwaway equipment. You know, if it's busted, ditch it at the side of the road. And so, you know, we we see all of the images of Russian tanks abandoned, of Russian vehicles abandoned, and as Westerners with a Western sense of warfighting, this is very strange to us because you know most of our militaries would be recovering these vehicles rehabilitating them and and using them to avoid losing munitions but in it in, in up armoring even right yeah. well with the with the russian doctrine however you know they're really just leaving these these vehicles as soon as they go down by the side of the road a, as a matter of frankly command and control efficiency and logistical ease as much as anything else. You know, they can't rehab them, so they're not going to bother wasting them. And so consequently you'll see many, many more sort of wrecked Russian vehicles than you would against an American style campaign. And so that, that also I want to contextualize some sure. of those images if I can. Sure. Uh, one hopes, of
1: course, that your first analysis slash, as you said it guess one right. hopes that it's an event looking for a diplomatic solution. One hopes that that's what we're watching. now. Right. I, I, and one could imagine a few scenarios. I just don't know.
2: Well, it's, also, it's still not clear to me what the end game is specifically. and so you I know, have two thoughts. You tell me if they're right or wrong. Well, I'd love to hear them. OK. One
1: is that we take Vladimir Putin at his word that he wants to reconstitute. The Soviet Union, right? That's one. Two, more achievable, and maybe I should put that in a different verb tense and say achieving that he is, you know, with China the world power that it's not the United States anymore.
2: No, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Okay. Okay. Um, the 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 power projection ability just doesn't bear that out. You know, you like. Compare and contrast the invasion of Iraq in 2003 with uh, the invasion of Ukraine now. Now, the US was able to organize an invasion literally on the other side of the planet and make that operation successful. The invasion of Iraq in 2003 took, I, I believe, just under five weeks to complete, um, which also is, is decent context for this. Ukraine is about the size of Russia – I'm sorry, of, uh, of Iraq and Afghanistan combined. And so if it took us five days to conquer the country – that the Russians haven't done it inside of a week is probably not an indicator that they're down and out yet. Um,
1: well, especially if Brandon Weikert is right, 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 that they go in and they test and they kind of see and they attrite themselves a little bit in the process right. and that they're OK with that. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not what the US does. And it goes to that body bag thing. I mean, they don't have those debates in Russia. They don't have those concerns. Right. No,
2: right. What what I might see happening would be rather than the full annexation of the entire country, something like a negotiated settlement that sees Ukraine split into an east and west along the Dnepr River, which then has sort of a pro-Russia mm-hmm. sort of uh, eastern size based out of Kharkiv mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. um, uh, a Pro Western side out of the Bob mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. That I could I could see as and potentially. It keeps Crimea with. Uh, with the right. And also gives them the sea right. of Azov and all sorts of other right. advantages. All right.
1: We'll pick up on that more when we come right back, and we will be right back. Happy to take your calls too. Lewis Holman is 602 508 0960. Want to put in a good word for our friends at Balance of Nature. Balanceofnature.com. 100% natural, no additives, third party tested. I take it every single day. It's powerful, potent fruits and vegetables. What kinds of fruits? The best kind. Everything you would possibly want in a blend that includes oranges, tart cherries, wild blueberries, grapefruit, raspberries, sweet cherries, lemon, tomatoes. And I haven't even told you about the vegetables yet. But go to balanceofnature.com. Balanceofnature.com. They're fruits and veggies. And use discount code Balance. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE for the best deal possible. I'm Seth. East Lewis. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman is our in-studio guest. Our phone number is 602-508-0960. Coming to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios uh we're gonna talk a little bit more about ukraine uh lewis has a few more theories he wants to flesh out with us uh and happily take your calls leo and scottsdale you're on the line with lewis and me welcome
0: thanks sir for a long time listener first time caller well,
1: welcome thank you
0: i uh i'm from brazil but i had the pleasure to live in russia and i've been going back and forth for the past 10 years uh to russia it doesn't make me a you know geopolitical expert but the idea that i hear about Russia, or Vladimir Putin trying to reconstitute the Soviet Union is just ridiculous. He knows he doesn't have the power, economics, or military. But that's what we hear from both the left and right, and it doesn't make any sense.
2: Well, I, I don't know that I agree, actually, Leo. Um, you know, there, there it's not that Putin believes in in the Soviet ideology but this is really a matter of physical geography right if you want to think about Russia as a big expanse it has borders that are probably worse than about any other country with the exception of China possibly now there are about n- there there are nine access points into the Russian heartland from the outside world When the Soviet Union was in power uh, up until 1991, the Russians controlled all nine of those access points. It's the most secure that they've ever been in their civilizational history. Uh, After the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia went from nine of those access points to one of them. And that then left them feeling incredibly vulnerable and and anxious. And this really comes back to – Catherine the Great's observation that Russia can only protect its – defend itself by expanding its borders. So if you look at its current position, you know back in, in, the, in the 90s, it would have had about 2,000 miles or so of frontier it has to defend with an army that is about a third to half the size of the Soviet Union's army. If Russia can secure all nine of those backstops again and it's currently got three of them uh, the first over in the Far East, it already had. It then got uh, the second by fighting uh, uh, Georgia in the Caucasus. The third was the Dengomi-Karagash War in 2019. The fourth could be if they get a better security posture with Kazakhstan following the unrest there. The fifth and sixth are from taking Ukraine. And so this is a this is a long-run policy that they are deeply, deeply committed to. Uh, for existential reasons. And so, you know, the, the, I, I find that there is a lot of validity. And if you understand the Russian mindset from this side as feeling like they're perpetually open and attacked on all fronts. You know, a mindset that goes back to the Mongols. Um, I think that you will that, re- that really fills in a lot of the gaps as to why the Russians do what they do.
1: The other the other issue is academic or not, whether it's the Soviet Union, he truly wants to reconstitute or not or some version of even a czarist Russia. It doesn't really matter that terribly much at the end of the day when everyone else around him thinks that's what he wants and is fearful of that, that he wants that. I mean this is what is concerning NATO. This is what is sure. concerning the Baltic states. This is what is concerning Poland. And at a certain point, you have to take the measure of their fears in the context of his actions. Let me lay another – Putin is as Putin does.
2: Let me me lay another wrinkle on this as to why now. So if if the challenge has been controlling these nine access points into the Russian heartland, then why is all of this seeming to come to a head right now? Mm -hmm. The answer to that is demographics. Now, the Russians had a massive, massive baby bust in the 90s because life in Russia at that time was – very rough. It was almost unimaginably bad for for Westerners living in the opulence that that we do, um, and so with with the Russians having a massive baby bust, the Russian army is a conscription system, and the number of troops it can get out of its population dramatically affects its ability to enforce its borders and maintain its level of security. The problem is is that that baby bust is so severe that between say 2015 and 2025 the Russian population size available for conscription will be reduced by 50%. And that's assuming you believe the Russian numbers which include the fact that they found about 8 million children back in 2014 in primary school which I don't buy and nor, nor does everyone else. So to compound this expansionistic problem of geography, we are now at an inflection point where the Russian ethnicity is aging so quickly that it is not actually possible for a demographic recovery to occur. The Russian ethnicity's population will half by the end of the century and, and Russia's borders as difficult to defend as they are and were in the 2010s will then become a completely untenable security position in their present form. And so it's an open debate in the United States right now whether we want to sort of manage Russia's collapse slowly over the long run or if we want to quagmire them into a Vietnam or an Afghanistan and bleed them dry.
1: You were going to make another point about Russia as well and Ukraine.
2: Well, actually it segued really nicely into my points, which were were both of those, the demography piece and then the – the geographical security piece, I think, are, are why Russia is doing what it's doing, and unless we un- unless we appreciate that, that we it's really hard for us to get to understand our what our our opposition is doing. You know, it's understanding what your enemy thinks isn't treason; it's necessary if you want to combat him effectively. One of the things that too few, it seems to me, are talking about. I'd
1: love your thoughts on this, Louis. Brian Kennedy was on the show last week talking about it, and he 's been sounding this alarm for years decades um and but too few have a few, but too few, which is you know when we are dealing with a nuclear power, an opposition particularly an oppositional nuclear power, but really a nuclear power of any kind, under the assumption that it could go either way, think Pakistan any any given moment, any given day uh the abilities are obviously tremendously um, cabined, uh shortened, reduced. Unless and until we get serious about something like missile defense, comprehensive missile defense, we are we are left pretty shorthanded in any kind of arsenal that our enemies, who are nuclear powers, want to consider. And it seems to me that. This is a problem that the left has had for far too long, but probably not enough talk from conservatives and Republicans either. And it doesn't have to be a partisan thing. just has to be a real thing. And it hasn't been. And I don't think most Americans understand that. But when people say it's hard to go up up against a nuclear power uh, and do much uh, or that we could do something that could trigger them, it just simply wouldn't be true if we had comprehensive missile defense. And I think if this story doesn't get us there. Well, let's talk about that as
2: we, as we come back. I okay. think there, there's some kind of complex calculus there. I, I agree with you to a degree, but let me push back a little bit. Sure. If I may. We'll be
1: right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman, our in-studio guest, as he is usually with Hugh Hallman. Hugh Hallman's out of the country. He'll be back with us, I believe, next week. Uh, Lewis, uh, you wanted to say a few more words on the Russia-Ukraine situation, including missile defense issues, as well as no-fly zones, I believe.
2: Well, you, you had been talking about, before the break, some of the, the problems in dealing with a nuclear-armed adversary yeah. in a world where we have fairly limited uh, uh, missile defense options. Um, well, the good news is that our our missile defense options aren't that limited. You know, they, uh, the THAAD system can can bring down missiles with roughly a fifty percent uh, efficacy rate. Also, if you look at, for instance, the Chinese hypersonic missiles that have been touted recently, those are predominantly anti shipping weapons that reach midway through the Pacific and don't target the U.S.'s industrial uh, uh, heartland. So, some good news there. Now. This comes after the expenditure of tens of billions of dollars on these systems. So these are not cheap, although they are, as, as you noted, very diplomatically useful in that regard. The issue, though, comes when you're dealing with – Russia is a little unique in this regard because their nuclear arsenal is – well, it's like ours. They have over 6,000 nuclear weapons. The next uh, uh, country on the list, it would be China at about 300. And so it's a 20-fold difference in operational capacity in that regard. And so, you know, it comes to the point where a nuclear exchange with a country like China or Pakistan or India is not literally the end of the world. It would still be unimaginably bad. And I'm not for it on any level. Like this would be terrible. But it, it would – it would not be the end of all life as it as it could have been in sort of the heights of the Cold War. Um, improving a, a, a missile defense system has really good kinds of returns against a limited adversary like that. It is less useful, I fear, against uh, uh, an adversary with massive general capability like Russia. Just because, you know, at some point things get through if we're talking about thousands of missiles. Um, it just happens, and so it's not clear to me that at that level it becomes preventative. Um, the next place I'd like to move, though, if I if I could, oh, Seth, go ahead, yeah. would be the sort of ongoing debate between members of our own uh, uh, political class and the European political class about whether or not to establish a NATO-backed no-fly zone over Ukraine. Right. This has been a big debate for the
1: last, I don't know, 80 hours or so.
2: I'm still – Yeah. I haven't really – it's only been a couple of days that this has been a debate, and I'm still working through sort of my moral calculus of how I feel about this subject. But my current position is that I don't think it's a good idea. I think the risk of putting – american combatants into the crosshairs of russian combatants and vice versa sort of opens the door for escalation with that with that nuclear rival that then is daunting uh to say the least you know that said um there are other things that we can do that would have analogous effects sending more uh missile systems to ukraine to to shoot down aircraft is a useful measure um, many European countries are, are sending more anti-tank weapons to Ukraine. I believe the Danes are forming an expeditionary brigade to go to Ukraine as of two days ago. Um, and so, you know, manpower and material is forthcoming. But I would like to apply it in such a way that the diplomatic backblast doesn't have the possibility of killing a billion people. Right. That that outcome is just so unequivocally bad that we need to keep it off of the table as much as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's sort of where I, I come down on. Not that I'm not sympathetic to the Ukrainians and to their fight. Oh yeah, we're sympathetic, to courage, but I tend to, on that point I
1: agree with you. On that point I agree with you.
2: The, if the point is to de-escalate, that would be an escalation. Right.
1: And it
2: also I I don't necessarily trust the American public to have a neutral emotional response to scores of fighter pilots being shot down over over Donbass.
1: This is a huge issue. Because if
2: that happens, then it may become boots on the ground. And if that happens, we're
1: in trouble. And I thought you might be going there. Um, Exactly right. Exactly right. All right. Did you want to say something on the other side of this break about individual rights based on the conversation I had with Dr. Mike? I would love to. You you did exactly where I wanted to go. Good. Good. By the way, choosing between freedom and unfreedom, it shouldn't be hard. Look at the ratings between Ukraine and Russia. OK, I'm not saying Ukraine is any great shakes here. It's a corrupt country with a lot of graft and other problems. But one country is clearly <laughs> much more in our ambit than the other. And I, it's worth, again, standing up and saluting these brave Ukrainians. That's all I'm saying. I'm Seth. He's Lewis. We'll be right back. Oh, this this is where I want the Glenn Campbell family to sue the Wrigley Corporation, right? Okay. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Lee Show. Um, Lewis Hallman is our guest. Uh, before actually this call may lead right into where you were going, uh, Lewis. Let me indulge it real quickly. Les in Phoenix. Hello, Les. Oh, Seth and then Lou. You know, I was watching T V and watching those eighteen to thirty year olds going in to make Molotov cocktails. They're willing to fight and die to keep Marxism, communism, authoritarian, whatever you want to call it, out of their country. And our 18 and 30 year olds come out of their mommy's basement or daddy's attic and they want to bring that here. Isn't that ironic? You have two groups of people the same ages. And I saw a professor over there on the news clip and he was there trying to help these young people. And our professors here are trying to steer our young people into exactly what those people are willing to die for. And our young people have
0: absolutely no risk at all involved. They're just living in a in a safe little cocoon. I just found
1: that really ironic. There's a uh, Les. Thank you for your call. There's a uh, important book that was written in the late '70s by Jean Francois Ravel. I've had occasion to quote him a lot. How democracies perish. And I think the title of the book is important. Clearly, a civ- he writes clearly a civilization that feels guilty for everything it is and does will lack the energy and conviction to defend itself. Seems like we're awfully good at teaching guilt here and not very good at teaching patriotism or really the purpose of our founding, which was to secure individual rights. Lewis, take it from there.
2: Well, just on that, Seth, that that does make me wonder and think about how a society's character is in many ways a product of its geography and history, right? That that liberalism exists in the United States is partially because of the fact that we weren't under threat during the sort of uh, uh, de- main development of our nation as a cultural entity um, you know external threat was really not something that we had to worry with ever, ever. and we right. had right. you know internavigable waterways right. through the greater right. mississippi right. basin that made transit easy right. decentralized government right. possible right. and so these traditions had about the perfect incubator here where they would not have had them in in a country like ukraine or russia which is subject to attack by you know, nomadic horse people and and places, of black outside. deaths, yes, and right. all kinds of other Any problems. number of border crossers. Right, right. But there was there was something. In Ours the last... was a problem of ideology, internal. Yes. So, but there was there was something in the last hour that the. Uh, Dr. Mike had called in and and mentioned something, and it triggered a thought in me. It's something I've been wrestling with, and maybe maybe you can help me figure this out because this is a, this is a half baked idea. Okay, we'll Among see if we many, can fully bake it. If, if, <laughs> if right. any of my ideas are hacked baked, yeah. this is probably the the least baked. Remember that line
1: in the graduate? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh no, it's completely baked. Right, so okay. Sounds half
0: baked. The- no, it's not. It's completely baked.
2: Yeah, how <laughs> did you have that? Perfect. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. But it's the it's the idea that that conservatives see themselves as individualists, and I, I as a conservative, had had you know seen myself and, and my ideology through the, the the lens of individualism, and the fact that the individual, as we all know, is the ultimate minority, right? And 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 thus the supremacy of individual rights over things like social justice, mm-hmm. for instance. Okay. But um, Or group rights. Right. Group, uh, exactly. OK. So there's a, uh, there's a Yale professor who I, whose work I like very much, Jonathan Haidt. Oh, yeah. Sure. You've quoted him before. I have, yes. He, he did the For work. those that are interested, H-A-I-D-T. Yes. He, he did work uh, developing what's called moral foundation theory where he tried to sort of identify the building blocks of human morality and how their expression differs amongst various people by political leaning. And he came up with five moral foundations. The first is harm versus care. Uh, the second is uh, uh, fairness and reciprocity. The third is in-group and loyalty. The fourth is authority and respect. And the fifth is purity and sa- or sanctity. Now, what's interesting is that uh, people on the political left, liberals, as we call them in this country, um, they typically default very heavily to two of those moral foundations. Those are harm and care and fairness and reciprocity. Okay. They do not use loyalty, authority or purity, sanctity. So what's interesting about that to me, conservatives, by the way, draw fairly evenly from all five of them. Libertarians use effectively only uh, 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 fairness and reciprocity or, or, or uh, sort of the individual right side of things. Now but what's what's fascinating about this is that those two moral foundations that that leftists will use the harm and the fairness piece those are individuating ideas, right? Or or individuating uh uh values. They're not things that are they're that expressed at the level of hierarchy or group or civilization like authority or purity or things like that. And so whenever we we keep telling ourselves that we're we're individualists. We're individualists. I don't think that we are at the level of our moral calculus. It, it, let me give you another example. So you may notice if you look, listen to the arguments that we make politically that conservatives are the ones who point to the legacy and the value of Western civilization as an inheritance. That is um, that is kind of a collectivist way to look at things On some sense. Right. It is the collective value of our civilization that Edmund Burke described as the bargain between the dead, the living and those yet born. And so it's not as much to me perhaps that we are we are pure individualists more than we negotiate the compact between the individual and society carefully and that that to me is the mark of a conservative, one who is interested in honoring that long run collective compact that we've had with our ancestors and society and civilization while worrying about the individual today the the left on on the other hand seems to be very worried about utterly uninterested in honoring the compact of our sort of civilizational elders and and much more interested in securing rights for themselves and and minimizing uh, emotional pain and suffering amongst themselves, all highly individuating measures.
1: Right. But individuating doesn't mean individualizing, right? Sure. And the individuating... Okay. Uh, You said a lot. (laughs) A lot of smart stuff there. I I don't know that we can do it (laughs) with the music playing. Let me let you have that point. Let me try and address it tomorrow and see if you can call in on it because I know you have a closing thought you want to share. Is that fair enough? Let's do it. The point I want to just leave you with very briefly on that is the uniqueness of Western civilization that we inherited was not inherited the way most governing philosophies are inherited, which is by blood or divine right of kings, but rather as an idea and a concept, which was the first on the scene to raise the individual above the group, above the blood, above the divine right of ruling or leadership class. Hold that thought until tomorrow, but hold all other thoughts for just a couple moments for Lewis's concluding piece. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. We appreciate it very much. Again, programming note: we will cover State of the Union live here, and commentary—great commentary—with it afterwards. So, no, no need to change the channel. We're taking you through the evening, Lewis Holman, take us away.
2: Seth, thank you so much for having me today. I, I always love doing it. It's a great to have my unhinged rantings uh, uh, hosted by you. You know, I, I don't quite know why you do it, but it is a delight. Um, on the State of the Union, you know, I, I kind of look around and I ask myself, what is the state of the union? COVID seems to have fallen off of the minds and the agendas of the uh, uh, political class and the expert class. And I suspect this evening we will hear lots and lots of gesticulating and hand-waving about how this is the greatest modern crisis of our time and that we need unity and that we need to stand together and that – you know, Biden will be playing leader of the free world and we will see how efficaciously he can do that. My, I am not terribly optimistic for him in that regard. Um, most of this, I think, will be an effort to change the tone and put a, if I may steal the term again, a hard reset in our relations with our own ruling class in that they want us to forget the quagmire and disaster, in from a public policy perspective, of the last year, and and give them the credence that they believe they are deserving of uh, going into the midterms. Which, you know, I I don't believe that we as as fair-minded people should do. We should not let them get away with wiping sw- slate clean and uh, uh, presenting a, a, that, a facsimile so. or a mockery of totally. leadership against the Ukrainian crisis. Totally agree with you on that. On that. on
1: Afghanistan, on COVID, on energy depend on any number of things. There needs to be accountability and an accounting. Faster, please, as Michael Lydian would say. Folks, God bless you all. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. We will have ongoing and continuing coverage of State of the Union the rest of this evening. We will give you our best analysis with your help tomorrow, your help, your calls, your emails. Until then, God bless you all, and class dismissed.